Great, it'd be good if you could keep that passage open. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, page 1164. Shall we pray before we start? Lord God, we do thank you uh, very much for your word. We thank you that it is like a double-edged sword that cuts to the bone. And Father, we pray that uh, today uh, you would cut to our bone. We might hear you speak, we might see uh, the real Lord Jesus and put our trust in him. In his name we pray. Amen. Question, are you being seduced? It's not a question we typically consider on a Sunday morning at church. Uh, It's probably not a question you'd normally turn to your neighbour and talk about, but it's a question that is clearly right at the heart of this passage. Are you being seduced? Spiritually seduced? Are we being drawn away from the authentic Jesus? The last two chapters of 2 Corinthians are immensely moving. They show Paul at his most fierce and yet most tender. Passion bursts from all of his words. And at the heart of these words is a battle of monumental importance. A battle that Paul is fighting with everything that he has. Not for himself, not for his own ego, but to win back the Corinthian church for Christ. And we've seen over the past few weeks uh, that Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church is deeply troubled. Uh, Paul spent 18 months planting the church in Corinth, but now there are big problems in his relationship with the church. The Corinthians, they've got it in for Paul, and Paul is deeply worried for them. There are lots of reasons for the difficulties, but one of the most important comes to the surface in this passage. There's been a takeover uh, in the church by those who Paul calls, sarcastically calls, super apostles. New, seemingly impressive teachers have arrived, and they've made really big waves. But there's a problem. And the problem these so-called super apostles present is clear from Paul's stinging broadside at the end of the passage. Just look at verses 13 to 15. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. These men claim to be apostles of Christ, workmen in the church, servants of righteousness. They clearly call themselves uh, Christians, and they use the language of the Christian faith. They claim to be on the side of truth and godliness, but they're not what they claim to be. They're not apostles. They're deceitful and they're masquerading. So to those who are not on their guard, they may look like faithful servants of Christ, but actually they're servants of Satan, the father of all lies. The teaching these false apostles give is satanic because it seductively leads people away from the authentic Jesus. So what does Paul do? He tackles this issue head on. And he does it in quite an unusual way. I wonder, do you see that in verse 1? Verse 1, I hope you'll put up with little of my foolishness, but you've already been doing that. This is a kind of biting sarcasm of Paul that runs through this passage in the rest of chapter 11. In order to shake the Corinthians into seeing sense, he's going to act like a fool, just like the so-called super apostles. Reluctantly, he's got to go and employ his opponent's methods, and that means boasting about his credentials. 
The false teachers parade theirs, so I'm going to parade mine, says Paul. They behave like idiots, so I will. But in doing so, I'll show you that I'm the real apostle and they are the frauds, not the other way around. Paul is not doing this for his own glory, but to convince the Corinthians of the authenticity of his teaching and the danger therein. Well, I think in this passage, Paul draws us away from spiritual seduction in two ways. First, through his godly jealousy, and second, through his godly boasting. Godly jealousy and godly boasting. So first, godly jealousy. Have a look at verse 2. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. This is Paul seeing the young church in Corinth as the bride and Jesus Christ as the bridegroom long promised by God. And Paul, well, he's father of this church. He's been there since the beginning, so he sees himself as the father of the bride. He sees himself with a job of presenting the bride to the bridegroom at the end of time when Christ returns. You know, Paul loves this church. And so when the question is asked at that ceremony, who gives this church to be married to Jesus Christ, Paul wants to say, me, I do. She's a pure virgin. She's given no favours to anyone. And it is a joy to present her to you, Lord Jesus. We tend to think, don't we, of jealousy as a really negative and destructive emotion. And I guess if it's irrational, if it's paranoid and unjustified, it can be. But not always. Jealousy can be loving and protective. Just imagine this. It's the evening before a girl's wedding day. Perhaps your daughter's wedding day. The girl's father's having those last few contemplative thoughts as he draws the curtains, locks up, turns off the lights downstairs, and he thinks for one last time he'll pop upstairs to see his daughter in her room. Just for the sake of nostalgia, as he used to do, When she she was a child, he'll give her a peck on the cheek, stroke her hair, say goodnight, maybe even pray with her. But when he opens the bedroom door, there's a terrible sight. There's a stranger in the bedroom. And everything about the scene makes it clear that the stranger is very welcome. If you can understand the pain that father would be in, his godly jealousy, his moral outrage, his love for his daughter, that he can understand how Paul feels for his daughter, the church in Corinth. Why? Because they're mucking around with a dodgy lover, having a sleazy flirtation before the marriage ceremony. This is a positive jealousy that Paul is displaying here. Don't misunderstand Paul in what he's saying. This is not Paul responding to spiteful criticism. Paul's not jealous for himself. He's jealous for them. Jealous for them as fellow believers, as Christians. And Paul's jealousy is the jealousy of God. It is on behalf of God. Paul is saying, I'm jealous over you with the jealousy of God. There is no room for an affair. We are to love and worship God alone. So what is it about these so-called super-apostles, that causes this jealousy to well up in Paul. We'll have a look at verse 3. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere 
and pure devotion to Christ. We know, don't we, that Satan, in the form of the serpent, in the Garden of Eden, led Eve astray. How? First, by sowing doubts about God's word, then by distorting God's word, and then by an outright denial of the truth of God's word. Satan spoiled God's former creation. And what's he up to now? He wants to defile what, in chapter 5, verse 17, is called the new creation, the church of Christ. The same strategy is at work here. Do you see that in verse 4? For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. These super apostles, they're preaching another gospel, another Jesus, and the church is just putting up with it. She's run off with a rascal. I wonder, do you notice how people are led astray? It's quite striking. People are led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ through the mind. The mind. It's interesting. Satan's seduction doesn't begin with him turning up dressed in red, giving you a bunch of roses, or a bit of a flirt at the bar. He wants to get believers and unbelievers not thinking straight. So earlier in 2 Corinthians, Paul's spoken of Satan's tactics in blinding unbelievers to the truth, so they can't see it. But here Paul says Satan doesn't just work in the mind of unbelievers, he also works in the mind of believers. Believers. To seduce us away from thinking in our right minds about Jesus. The mind matters, untruth gets in through the mind. We don't know exactly what these false teachers were teaching, They probably taught adherence to the Old Testament law, even though it had been finished with Christ. But we don't know for certain. But what's clear from what Paul writes is they are teaching a different Jesus to the Jesus that Paul taught. So, what Jesus did Paul teach? Well, we know precisely the Jesus that Paul taught. Uh, It's there in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, verse 20. Just turn back to it. Chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Paul is saying in that sentence, Jesus is the complete fulfillment of every promise that God has ever made throughout biblical history. He is God's promised eternal king. God's promised judge, God's promised ruler, God's promised way for us to be forgiven, the only way for us to be forgiven, the king who will one day destroy all of his opponents. This has always been, always been the authentic Christian message, that Jesus Christ is God's eternal ruler, and all, all should submit to him as Lord and receive forgiveness from him. Jesus is the yes, the yes to every promise of God. Yet that is not what these false teachers are teaching. They're teaching a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different spirit. They might use all the Christian lingo, say all the right words, but they actually twist it out of all recognition. They're adding to Jesus 
or they're taking away from Jesus, suggesting that God's promises are not fully met in Christ. And what's happened? Duped by the clever lies the Corinthians put up with what they hear. Well, what are the lessons for us here in what Paul says? Well, surely we need to beware of the leaders in our church. What's very interesting about Paul in his writings is that at no time does he complain about Roman persecution. You know, Christians were being routinely crucified upside down at this time. You know, not great prospects for the Christians. Why isn't he writing about this, warning about this? It's not a subject that features heavily in his writing. Well, surely the point is this. A commentator got it right when he said this. When Satan wants to injure the church, he invariably dresses up as a Christian. When Satan wants to injure the church, he invariably dresses up as a Christian. You know, since its inception, the church has been infected with unbelief. Maybe we think that doesn't apply to us. Surely we would never get taken in. We're too soundly well taught, too clever for that. But the Corinthians weren't stupid. Some of them were very intelligent. Many of them were very gifted. Paul makes that clear in his writings. But they were duped nonetheless. So we need to beware leaders who uh, promise more than the gospel can offer in this world. A more prosperous life. Material blessing and fulfilment, maybe a promise of physical healing, financial security, a life that is going to be fine. You become a Christian, it's going to be fine. It'll be great. There'll be no worries. You know, Satan doesn't arrive with a pitchfork and say, disobey God's words. Instead, he subtly distorts God's words, making it more palatable, and we're just taken in. I wonder, maybe after years of pressure, do we just want something that's a bit easier Is that what we want to hear? Something which soothes our pain, gives our ego a bit of a boost. So maybe we end up playing up a culture of success, being very triumphant in the gospel, playing up glory. And at the same time, we play down the cross, we play down suffering, we play down weakness. Maybe the cross of Christ starts to feature a little bit less in the teaching of the church. The gospel does bring comfort, don't don't misunderstand. But it's also clear that the pathway to glory is the way of suffering. And we need to be careful not to sleep around spiritually. We need to stick with the real Jesus. The Jesus who is yes to every promise of God. I think the importance of the mind is also a lesson to those of us who are parents. The mind matters And it's vital that our children see and recognise and are brought up in the truth of the gospel, to see truth and error as it really is. I remember a few years ago I read the Dark Materials trilogy uh, by Philip Pullman, and it's striking how powerfully uh, subversive those books are. This kind of eating away at Christian doctrine, changing default settings in the mind, exactly, incidentally, as they're supposed to do, as they're designed and written to do. We need to be alive as parents to those sorts of dangers and do all we can to unashamedly train our children in the truth of the gospel. The mind matters. So first, Paul draws us away from spiritual seduction through his godly jealousy. 
I think second, and much more briefly, he does so through his godly boasting. His godly boasting. Some people in Corinth didn't really think much of what they saw in Paul. He seemed a bit of a loser in many ways, a bit weak and pathetic, constantly banged up in prison, badly educated, tent maker. Not a great CV. The new preachers, well, they seemed a much more impressive bunch. The kind of Armani-suited, wide-smiled, smooth-talking, sort of televangelists of the day. So what does Paul want to do? He wants to get across the message that he is better than these so-called super-apostles. Not so he can lie back and bask in his own glory, but so the Corinthians listen to his God-given teaching. With all that is at stake, he's got no option but to boast. Just look at verse 5. But I do not think I am the least inferior to those super-apostles. I may not be a, a a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. You know, Paul isn't saying here that he's a bad speaker. He's simply saying, look, the content of my sermons, what I say, matters more than how they're delivered. Paul didn't care whether they were impressed with his sermon. What was important was whether they listened to what he said, because he had knowledge. One of the slightly embarrassing aspects of uh, our first Christmas with our daughter Isabel was her approach to presents. You can kind of picture the scene, everyone gathered around the tree, fire going, the grandparents giving a lot of thought to a present, and it's gently handed to her. But what's Isabel's approach? It's the wrapping paper that matters. And once the shiny paper is off the present and thrown to a side, it's onto the next one. And the actual present itself doesn't really get that much of a look in, at least not initially. Well, that's the kind of immature behaviour that Paul is talking about here. It is the infantile Christian who is impressed by the outward appearance. The eloquence and and high profile of the, the super apostle, the speaker's charisma, the church he comes from, the marketing that he comes with, his height. That's not what it's important. The Corinthians had to recognize and accept and submit themselves Uh, to the fact that what Paul taught was the truth. Not a partial truth, not an obscured truth, but the truth, the, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The truth revealed to Paul as the chosen apostle to the Gentiles by God himself. Do you notice how Paul reinforces his boasting by highlighting how he is different from the super apostles? First, money, just look at verses 7 and 8. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? And then the end of verse 9. I have kept myself from being a burden from you in any way and will continue to do so. Paul didn't go about his ministry in Corinth in the same way as the super apostles. He preached for free. He was probably despised, laughed at because of it. Who preaches for free? Only an idiotic tent maker. But by doing so, Paul was saying, stating, I'm not the same as these false apostles. I don't bleed the church dry uh, for the gospel, free that it is. I'm under the authority of no one except Christ. And secondly, Paul shows he's different through his love. Let's look at verses 10 to 12. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, 
Nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. Paul's love, his passion, his concern uh, for the Corinthian church just burns through this passage. He's wearing his heart on his sleeve here. Surely, in contrast to the manipulative and self-serving false teachers. I wonder, do we have uh, Paul's godly jealousy for those in our care? Do we love people with such a passion that we'll do everything for them to faithfully teach them in the truth of the gospel? If we have any kind of leadership in this church, children's work, Christianity Explored, house group, do we have Paul's passion for the people in our care? One of the marks of a true godly leader is love. Paul had it. Do we? So Paul's godly jealousy and his godly boasting. In the end, if we don't accept that the teaching and authority of Paul is from God, then Jesus can be just distorted, just manipulated into any shape we like. We make Christ in our own image. And before we know it, we've been seduced by the great deceiver, Satan. It's tough, isn't it? Our culture is a very image-conscious, feelings-led and often unthinking culture. So we need to have a sharp mind that's geared to the truth and not be, unash- not be ashamed about that. A mind that can recognise uh, and challenge those things that are not Christian or are only partially Christian. And we need to continually ask ourselves, are we, have we been spiritually seduced? Does Jesus, does Christ occupy the same position in our minds and thinking as he does for Paul? Can we say with all our hearts and the passion of Paul, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ? We need to pray that we can. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, for all that he is. Your promised king, your promised ruler, your promised judge, your promised way for us to be forgiven. Lord, we pray that he would be sufficient for us. That we would uh, see him and understand him and trust him uh, for who he is. The Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, please protect us and draw us back from being uh, tempted to to believe and trust in things uh, that are outside of him. For his glory we we pray. Amen.